Hello and welcome to another episode of The Modern Urologist. I'm Dr. Todd Cohen, Medical Director of Myriad Genetics, and I'm really happy to have with me today a good friend and a colleague for many years, Dr. Samuel Peritzman, or as we like to call him, Sandy. Sandy, thanks a lot for joining us tonight. Hey, thanks so much for inviting me. My pleasure. Sandy joins us from Urology Specialist of the Carolinas uh, in the Charlotte area of North Carolina. And um, we're gonna have, we have a lot of topics to cover tonight. And uh, I want to start off with high-intensity focused ultrasound at HIFU. You were really one of the early guys to get involved with HIFU. How, how did you get involved with it and why? Well, back in the 1990s, we actually had some patients interested in it. And at the time, Avalotherm had a clinical trial the closest one to us was up at George Washington, and we would refer a couple patients that way. Um, a collaboration of myself uh, and some of the urologic oncologists at the time at Wake Forest, uh, Chapel Hill, and Emory looked at being one of the trial sites. That trial got ended early by the FDA, so we never got to be a site. Within a few years of that, I just started to see patients from my part of the country who were flying to Europe to be treated uh, with whole gland hyphen for prostate cancer. And when they returned to this region, their uh, original urologist wasn't comfortable managing them. So I ended up kind of entering through the back door where I had to manage these patients postoperatively, you know, beginning about 20 years ago. And after one particular Sentinel patient who was treated in Germany at Regensburg, I decided if I'm going to take care of them, I might as well learn the technology. And at some point, I might as well do it myself. Uh, yeah, when, um, when did they start doing it? It's been around in Europe for a long time. Patients were treated by Professor Marburger in the early 1990s. He actually had the original clinical trial where he did whole gland hyphu, followed weeks later uh, by uh, open radical prostatectomy to look at the specimen pathologically. And that was the first article that was published by the mid 90s, basically demonstrating the histologic efficacy of whole gland hyphu. Didn't have any clinical follow up because obviously he was doing it before he, he did open radical prostatectomies. So, you know, I had conversations with him on and off over the decades. He also is the one who, in 2007, uh, got me doing uh, robotic salvage prostatectomies for people with HIFU persistent disease. Uh, he sent me down that pathway 13 years ago. Uh, so whether it's a- And, and you're, and you're not, all thankful for him for that. <laughs> yeah, so for better or worse, uh, we actually have the largest series of single surgeon post HIFU robotic prostatectomy in the world. Uh, the first, series was published in 2017 in the Journal of Robotic Surgery. And after a patient we do next week, uh, we're gonna write them up again because I'll have crossed the 30 mark. It doesn't sound like a large number, but if you talk to people like Vip Patel, Jay Smith, you look at any of the salvage series presented to AUA in the last five years, uh, most folks' HIFU numbers are zero to five and they, aren't able to discriminate whole gland, partial gland, which device they were treated. They just get lumped in with the radiation salvages. I want to get specifically about failures later on. But okay, sure. So, yeah, so you've been doing the HIFU for a long time. I know you were doing them overseas for a while, um, like in the Bahamas or someplace. 
if you want, I can tell you the history of how Haifu got started in this hemisphere. But within about... Oh, give me the right Reader's Digest, Digest version. Yes. Uh, well, it's interesting because, again, it's another European. So the father of lithotripsy, uh, one of our German friends, was a visiting professor at University of Miami. And he presented as a visiting professor his Haifu series. And it was like, why aren't you doing it here? And that was circa 2004 uh, down at University of Miami. And that kind of perked the interest of one of the faculty members. Uh, except it wasn't FDA approved in this country. And one of the cryo companies uh, that doesn't really do cryo anymore actually had a controlling interest in the manufacture of the US HIFU device. And the gentleman at University of Miami created an entity, got control of that device, couldn't use it in the United States. So he set up these offshore HIFU centers for American uh, urologists to still do HIFU until it could get done in the United States. So that began in 2004. So I started doing HIFU on my own, uh, I think it was February of 06. Uh, it's been about 14, 15 years. Um, and then I've been doing it offshore from 06 to December 2015 and here in Charlotte ever since. Same engineer, same device, just no plane ride. HIFU was always thought about as being for lower risk guys and things like that, but what kind of, what do you see as a, a good candidate or, or when you have a patient that's prostate cancer, who's a good candidate for HIFU? Uh, the best candidate is somebody who understands what it can accomplish. And so we have these discussions every day. If you just look at all the historic uh, targeted therapies, brachytherapy, low dose rate brachytherapy, cryotherapy in the 90s, HIFU and anything that's the target of the ablation, they used to go, you know, they wanted those Gleason 6s. Uh, and you were trying to use a low morbidity therapy against a low risk cancer. Those people are mostly on watch for waiting now. So if you look who actually shows up, uh, and if you actually look at the journal urology article from just two weeks ago, uh, on the first 100 hemiablations done and published in the US, the mode patient is a Gleason 7 now. 50% uh, of the patients in that series were intermediate risk and 10% were high risk. And if you look at the European data, their 10-year data, their 15-year data, this is data published in the early 2000s because they've been treating patients since the early 1990s. Uh, their long-term data is risk stratified just like our results are for surgery or radiation. The higher the Gleason score, the higher the persistence rate, the higher the retreatment rate. Uh, so it, in Europe, over 15 years, their results paralleled other therapies. And I can't imagine ours won't. There's no evidence that the ability to kill a living cell is with thermal energy is grade dependent. You know, uh, Gleason 3-3, you yeah. expose it to 90 degrees centigrade, those proteins have to degrade, they have to denature. There's just not a living cell. It's like cryo, you get it to minus 40 degrees centigrade, you must die, no living cell can survive it. <laughs> so it's really a matter of, can you reach it? And is there microscopic disease beyond the reach of the energy source? Because you're not gonna fix that. Okay, let's and stop so there. Go the on, grade go on really, 
The grade really impacts on extraprostatic microscopic disease because you're not going to reach it. Right. What about, um, so along those lines, you get a guy, because um, this is a transrectal procedure uh, with a tall gland. You, know, you do your pre-studies. Now, is there a limit that you can do as far as the height of a, of a prostate? Yeah, it varies with the device and the probe. But, you know, the, the typical prostate needs to be 34 to 40 millimeters maximum AP height. Now, that's if you're going to treat that area. So in the world of targeted therapy, if the lesion's by the rectal wall, uh, you can get a 15, 20 millimeter margin above a posterior lesion. So your difficulty is only going to be lesions at the base because that AP height is going to be at the base, right? You're never going to have an apical 42 millimeters. It's going to be maybe 15. You would, you would hope not. Right. It's going to be 15 <laughs> to 20 at the apex, but it might be 40 at the base. And most people measure in the midline, which is the fibrostromal zone. So your risk of cancer in the midline anterior base is low. Uh, but if, if you have at minimum an MRI that doesn't see anything up there, or you made an effort to take selected bias, uh, biopsies up there, like the transperineal people would do, then you don't have to treat there. You're just doing a subtotal ablation. The typical large gland I saw one yesterday, 63 cc's, I'll treat 40 millimeters from the rectal wall up. And he will have viable fibrostromal gland, maybe some viable anterior transitional zone, but only at the base. But he still wants to go down that path because it's got effectively zero incontinence as published and near zero uh, erectile dysfunction. So, I mean, with MRI now, I mean, most, most cancers are not going to be in the anterior zone of the prostate. Correct. So, and with MRI now, you have, it's not perfect, but you get a really good idea. If it's a negative anterior MRI, you feel a lot more comfortable, I guess, you know, these days than you did in the past when you weren't doing MRIs. Yeah, and you know, in our world, uh, a one-year MRI and rebiopsy is mandated. Right. And one of the reasons I think our failure rates, even where it is, is because we search for failure. You know, we search for early failure something we don't typically do, for example, in radiation therapy. You know, you don't re-biopsy everybody immediately or even at 30 months to prove there's no residual disease. Whereas in HIFA, we do that. So we want to find failures early. And obviously we suspect areas where we didn't reach our potential out of failed failures. And we try to sample them, you know, at the future biopsy. Now, when you're talking about the failures in this instance, are you talking with the focal or are you talking about whole gland? Uh, well, both? we're talking out of field. If you treat a subtotal, I couldn't reach millimeters 35 okay. to 42, so it's untreated. Now, when you treat them, it's going to shrink. It's going to contract. So what was too far away a year later may actually be a lot closer as the gland shrinks down. I want to kind of switch gears a little bit now. Um, I want to talk about specifically about focal therapy. And I know there's lots of different methods and you know, methodologies to, to do focal. Um, but I think the start of that is the patient types. I talked a little bit about the patient type for, um, for HIFU. And, you know, I've read the literature and I, I understand, you know, people were scared to do it. They said, you can't, HIFU doesn't work in sevens, eights, and nines, which is 
not the case, and it has been proven many times. But what about the focal therapy? Start with how you work up a patient or how you determine if a patient is a good candidate for, for focal therapy. I want to start with that. Then I want to go into the methods, failure, and all that kind of stuff and what you do. Afterwards. Sure. So the first thing is establishing that the target cancer is within reach of the technology. So that means that its distance from the probe is within a targetable range, plus you want a safety margin on the far side. So I particularly don't want to be treating a lesion that's 27 to 34 millimeters away if I can't get above 34 millimeters. Uh, you know, all the published data show that the cancer extends probably six to 12 millimeters from what you see on the MRI in a grade dependent manner. So for low grade cancers, most people want a minimum six millimeter margin, intermediate grade, shoot for 12 millimeter margin. But as we express to the patients, the MRI really sees Saturn, but doesn't see its rings, or we'll tell them it sees the head of the octopus, but not the tentacles. You need a wider margin to cover the microscopic halo beyond the edge of what's MRI evident. Uh, so we've got to decide, can we reach it? The next issue is, do they have sound path issues? So once you determine where the target is, you have to make sure there's no impediment to getting the sound waves to it. Most urologists doing diagnostic biopsies aren't worried about the distribution of calcium. They're doing the systematic biopsies or maybe even a fusion. But mm -hmm. if they look, if they're trying to hit a six millimeter fusion that's on the anterior side of a 12 millimeter calcification, we can't get that with HIFU. You know, right. it's a sound barrier. So mm -hmm. we I have was to be make sure there's no, no sound path issues in the rectal wall for safety, particularly. You don't want uh, calcium in a rectal wall that's going to cause rectal wall heating. You know, that's not the intended target, plus the risk of a fistula. And you don't want calcification between the probe and your targeted lesion or it's gotta be minimal calcification or calcification you can TUR out. You can determine that on a pre ultrasound. So as long as it's not a logistical issue or a sound path issue, then it's uh, a matter of, is it intraprostatic? I'll still do people whose MRI shows a capsular bulge. Uh, I typically don't do people with gross uh, extracapsular extension, I can get the energy there, but my belief is there's going to be something beyond it. There's nothing that says yeah. you can't hypho outside the prostate. You know, if it's 15, 20 millimeters to the posterior lateral edge, you can hypho out into the fat, you can hypho the dorsal vein complex, you know, you can hypho anything you don't mind cooking. Uh, yeah, well, let me just stop you for one second. Sure. You mentioned before, you TURing people. And, you know, if there's a lot of calcifications or something like that, or if they have a large, you know, very large gland or something like that, are you still doing much of that? Well, I do it very selectively. So there are urologists that'll do either a transurethral incision or resection before most hyphus. It's to facilitate voiding after the ablation, uh, particularly if you're putting much heat in the transitional zone periurethrally. They're going to swell, and it's going to delay their time to void. So that would protract catheter time, be it a urethral foley or an SP tube. So most of the folks that are doing it are doing it to expedite 
voiding and to shorten catheter time. The hyphu itself doesn't need it. Uh, there are some folks that just do them all in advance. They're trying to keep everybody moving along with the shortest catheter times. Generally, I individualize it and will tell people we can wait out the swelling. You might have a catheter three weeks, three and a half weeks. If you want the fastest catheter, you want a five-day catheter, I need an open channel because it's going to swell. And so we'll do uh, TWIPs and TERPs selectively. If you look at the old whole gland data where that wasn't done, uh, about 24% of patients will get a post-hyphu endoscopic procedure to deal with necrotic tissue. Mm -hmm. Now in the targeted area, uh, if the biopsies and MRI don't see anything near the urethra, then you've, you spare the urethra. And then there's less swelling and you avoid faster. So if you, if you have a, a, an isolated lesion, you do your targeted biopsies and you have one ROI or one area, how do you go about it? I know some people talk about they, they kind of just target the, the lesion and maybe a rim of you know, six to 10 millimeters around that. Um, but you've talked to, we've talked in the past about this, about doing hemigland as opposed to um, real true focal. And yeah, and it was kind of the same thing, but yeah, know, I was you, delighted you to see the the, when the hemiablation article came out in Journal of Urology a week or two ago, in the editorial and some of the other kind of online responses for various publications that picked up the article and summarized it, and then there were comments. I was delighted to see that more and more people are on the hemiablation bandwagon and that the pendulum is swung away from trying to rely on MRI to precisely divine a border and maybe do a two millimeter margin. So when you look at the UK data with 37% retreatment, to me that's high. And yes. now nobody's harmed in their system the second hyphu doesn't really cost them anything. The inconvenience, but there's not that much of a burden and those people generally counsel their patients, it'll be one or two treatments. They just build that in up front. We set up the expectation, right? Yeah, it's gonna be one or two. Uh, in fact, in their randomized trial against radical prostatectomy, you know, they did a, a partial gland ablation versus radical prostatectomy trial uh, a second hyphu in field was not considered retreatment. It's just built into the treatment, one or two hyphus. Uh, in my world, I'd rather try to be one and done. As I would say tongue in cheek to Mark Emberton and the others in the UK, my patients aren't that obsessed with semen volume. There's really not much lost with a hemiablation. Uh, you're treating tissue they're not using. And if I'm reducing in-field or out-of-field recurrences, it sounds great. So I always do uh, one lobe or even hockey stick under the urethra, and it might be like 0 0.6, 0 0.65. I'm trying to get that peripheral zone across midline that they're not using for anything anyways. It's not near their sphincter. It's not near a neurovascular bundle. It's a peripheral it's zone at risk. It's just time on the device. They're not going to miss it. And, and if they're going to have some tissue that you didn't find, that's the more likely place it's going to be. Yeah, I'm just trying to minimize out-of-field recurrences that I might want to retreat. Right. Uh, 
and it's time on the machine. There's just really no morbidity to it. Uh, now, we'll stay far away from the contralateral neurovascular bundle. We'll stay away from the sphincter if there's nothing at the apex of concern. Uh, but to take out 75, 80% of a 30cc gland, you're just reducing semen. Uh, the one thing this kind of semen conscious patients have to be aware of is you have to be clear with the math. Half a prostate doesn't equate to half your semen volume. So if but they have to understand that if they're having any other kind of treatment, regardless of what they're going to have, they're going to have zero semen. Yeah, but what you get to explain to them is kind of the arborization of the ejaculatory ducts. Because if you heat down toward the viru, even if you leave them half a prostate, there's no plumbing for it to exit. No manufacture it, but there's no patent plumbing. It doesn't come out. Right. Uh, and I make sure I counsel on that because you'll hear that from a lot of patients. Hey, you only took out half my prostate. Where's half my semen? So you get to tell them that up front so they don't get upset. Yeah, and hopefully they didn't measure before and after. You know, yeah, but the bottom line is I basically completely ablate the lobe that the ROI's in. I may stay off the ipsilateral neurovascular bundle if it's not within my safety zone, you know, my margin around the lesion. Uh, if it's a more kind of midline lesion or more anterior, I, you can see the neurovascular bundle, same as you can see it surgically, uh, not hard to locate, and you can just keep the heat off it. Now, would you say in your experience, with either focal or whole gland therapy that you know you're treating more sevens sixes or do you just are you across the board now with all of these uh no in the in the article it's 50 percent were uh, intermediate risk roughly 25 percent uh unfavorable intermediate to high risk we did no very high risks, no NCCN very high risks, and uh, low risk and very low risk combined. The, the historic seed implant person was like six to eight percent. So because they're getting our, mostly our active surveillance. patient now. is a four three. So you're seeing more four three. I think when you start, when do you see a, a, a migration or more of what you were doing? Yeah, but you know it's a referral based practice. So the urologist that diagnosed the person, if they're a microfocal 3-3, three, three, they're, they're not gonna show up in my office. They're at home on watchful waiting typically. So for them to get here, they've already been counseled and they've already decided, you know, they want an intervention for an intermediate risk tumor and this is, you know, the therapeutic choice. Uh, so but, a lot of what you're seeing are people that are sent specifically for hyphen. Or focal therapy, focal hyphen. Correct. As, a, as opposed to guys that you, you diagnose de novo. Oh, yeah. I don't diagnose 10% maybe of my own patients, and perhaps 25% come from my metro area. Uh, so just the 10% of, of others, the, my friends that I send to you now. <laughs> Pardon? <laughs> I said the 10% are probably all my friends that I'm now sending yeah. to you because yeah, no, all my no, friends no. are that age now. Right. We just get referrals from all around. Uh, so most of them come in from somewhere else. 
Okay, for, so follow-up. So you do a, a focal therapy, and what is your typical follow-up on a patient that stays in town, not the guy that's from Houston or something like that? Oh, no, it's the same. So if it's, a, if it's not a whole gland therapy, uh, we're emphatic at the start that they follow the regimen we put in place when we applied to be a NCI uh, uh, tumor registry. So we've applied, and this is all downstream of the FDA approval. So at the time of FDA approval, part of it was we had to demonstrate going forward how we were doing. Uh, so the heat registry was created, uh, that gets centrally managed in London, but there's a United States compartmentalization. So all these patients follow the same regimen. And my nurse practitioner chases down every PSA, every biopsy, every MRI around the country. And if there's a blank on the spreadsheet, she's on the phone, making sure they're getting stuff done. So the mandate is uh, for the NCI designated registry, it's a quarterly PSA, an MRI by one year, six to 12 months, and a biopsy of the field and the non-treated side at one year. Then they wanted originally a three-year biopsy and a five-year biopsy. Uh, those of us that have been doing HIFU for a decade and a half basically told them, you're not going to get patients doing well to come back for these biopsies. It's just not going to happen. Uh, but our compliance with the one-year biopsy and the one-year MRI is extremely high because we just hammer it into them so hard at the start. 